0: Well again, it's my privilege to teach. I'm not sure I should be doing this if Dave is here, but uh, we'll take a shot at Romans chapter 3 again, uh, as we did last week, and we'll try to, to uh, give a little more clarity to what we shared last week and wrap this up, and uh, so that Dave can... Uh, at least feel like I didn't just leave him with a big can of worms, okay? So, here we have, if you have a Bible, let's read it again, and then we're going to do a little background on what we covered last week and build to where we're going to be, hopefully finishing up today. But it says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because unto them was committed the word of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that thou mightest be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you judge. But if if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, yet why am I judged as a sinner, and not rather as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, "Let us do evil that good may come," whose damnation is just? What then are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles that are that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all altogether gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness." Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that that which is said, uh, what things soever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Christ or in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now here you have chapter 3 again. And again, the key verse, maybe, of the entire first 12 chapters of Romans is verse 26. The issue here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I shared with you last week, what Paul is doing here is literally giving you the full picture of the gospel that he preaches. Okay, This is the only church that Paul actually preached or writes to that he has never been there. They don't have the background of all of his teaching. There may be some people there that have heard him teach, but this is not a Paul church. Paul did not found the church at Rome. This is not where he laid the foundation of his gospel like he did in Ephesus or Corinthians. And so when you read those letters, what you really have is Paul giving you maybe bits and pieces of what he taught as he corrects problems within those particular churches. But when you get to the Roman letter, you have an incredible letter because you have literally Paul articulating in fullness the gospel that he has been committed to. Right? I mean, in the very beginning, this is why in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, you have Paul introducing himself as Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Right? Called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he foretold, right? Or he promised by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made according to the flesh after the seed of David and declared to be the Son of God, my friend, with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the only time in any epistle that Paul introduces himself, my friend, as someone who is the servant of Jesus Christ separated unto the gospel. The gospel is the issue of the letter of Romans. And so when you read Romans, you get the picture. Now, as I shared last week, the problem here as we think of the gospel is that we don't see the gospel as God-centered. We see it as man-centered. We think, my friend, I've got a text to, to yesterday from a woman who I've been praying, her and her husband, I've been praying with and, and for their family for, I don't know, 20 years probably writing about her daughter who has forsaken the faith and she said I don't understand why she would leave the god of love that we so taught her about and then she articulated why her daughter had left the faith and she said my daughter has left the faith and she gave seven or eight or nine reasons but the 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 issue in every one of them is that the Old Testament, the Old Testament God and all of the judgment and the wrath that you see there does not coincide with the the God of love that we have talked about in the New Testament. And so she's rejected that dichotomy. Now I told you last week, that's what's happening in your country. It's what's happening in your world. We have developed this idea that God is love without the understanding of his law and who he is. When God reveals himself, he does so in a very systematic way through history. And you have over 6,000 years, probably 10,000 years of biblical history before God ever says, For he so loved the world. You have 10,000 years of history where God paints the backdrop as dark as he possibly can. He starts, my friend, with the first issue in Adam and Eve and the judgment of sin, right? Mm -hmm. And he says that someday the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That she will bring forth, the woman will bring forth a son and he will literally defeat the power of the enemy, the one who has tempted right. you and brought you into the bondage of sin. He will defeat him. Mm-hmm. you realize that, my friend, in Genesis 4, therefore, Jesus could have been born and fulfilled every prophecy ever given about him? Why wait 10,000 years of misery? Why, my friend, do you pen the words of the whole book of Genesis starting with the fall of man, up through the, the, the judgment of the flood of Noah, where the entire race is wiped out, besides, my friend, Noah and his children. Why wait? Why see all of that judgment and wrath? My friend, God is trying to prove something here that He already knows, and you and I need to know very clearly. We are sinners. And there is nothing that will fix this problem. That's right. Ethnic cleansing will fix this right. problem. Look, I killed everybody but the best man on the planet, and it only takes him six months to screw it up again. Huh. Well, maybe if I separated out a nation of people and gave them very clear, distinct rules that reflect my moral creation, my moral attributes, mm-hmm. then maybe, So he takes a nation, separates them by themselves, brings them out of bondage in Egypt, my friend, after 400 years of slavery to make sure they were very isolated. Puts them in a country of their own, gives them the best law, the best rules. He says to Israel, listen, if you will keep my commandments, the nations will come unto you and say, what God is this you serve? For no other nation has a God like yours that has given them such a written word. Surely this will do it, right? Now this is not God trying to figure out a way to redeem man. This is God proving to man that he can't be redeemed. Any other way. My friend, Genesis will slam shut with one word, coffin. The Old Testament, 10,000 years of history, with the prophet Malachi will shut its doors, my friend, with one word, curse. And you will have 400 silent years. God will wait until the picture is as black as it can get. It's going to get awful dark before the light shines. And yet, my friend, we in the church take our children and everybody else and skip right over the entire 10,000 years of revelation and tell them, listen, Jesus loves you. You can see the same thing in Romans. Mm -hmm. Paul talks about his gospel, and in verse 14 he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is or Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to every man that believes. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. For herein is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. From faith unto faith, for the just shall live by faith. You would think that the next word, based on the way we approach. The issue of bringing people to Christ would say, For God commended his love towards you that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Not so, my friend. The love of God will not be mentioned in the book of Romans until Romans chapter 5, verse 8. The next verse in Romans chapter 1 is, The wrath of God is revealed That's from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What's he doing? My friend, when you will, you and I come to grips with the great need of knowing the law of God. Because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Paul will spend three chapters in the book of Romans proving that the Gentile world is as lost and perverted and as sinful as it can get. And the Jews are just like them. Mm, Come on before he will ever tell them the answer. My friend, now, is it really? Because again, we live in America where we have been inundated with the idea that we are good people who make bad choices. But that's not the way that Romans chapter 3 reads. No, not one. There's none that do good. Oh, really? Is that a fair and just statement by a holy God? I mean, can you really, my friend, look at Bill Gates. Let's just use him for an example, because everybody knows he is. Who, my friend, has given $39 billion to him and his wife's foundation. Where those $39 billion primarily will be used to do, my friend, AIDS research. And AIDS help. And educational help. And my friend, health help. In third world countries where the epidemic, my friend, is slaying thousands, can you really say that's not good? Now look, Romans is going to require you to think. Is that not good? Is it true that none do good? No, not one. There is none righteous. How can you say that? Well, what is sin? He gives us a little bit of an insight in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. See it there? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Behold it here that word sin is a Greek archery term that means to fall short of the mark. But if you were to go back through scripture and gather up the words, like in Psalms 51, where you see numerous words used for sin, where David talks of his sin, his transgression, his iniquity, you begin to get a full picture. For sin, my friend, is is a transgression of the law. Well, now hold it. That means, my friend, in At least in some interpret, I mean, uh, definition, sin is merely the breaking of one of God's moral absolutes. Right now, let me get this. Let me help you understand something here. First of all, you will never break God's law. You will be broken on it. God's law is settled in the heavens; it will never change. Sin is the breaking of the law, but it's more than that. For transgression, my friend, literally means to go beyond the mark of the law. So now, my friend, I've not only fallen short, I've gone beyond. I not only have the sin of commission, I have the sin of omission. I have not done what God has called me to do. Plus, my friend, I've done what he told me not to do. But it's more than that. What about iniquity? What is it? Well, Paul gives us a little insight in Romans three twenty three, for he says it has fallen short of the glory of God. Now, here we're going to get to Bill Gates. Iniquity, when you isolate it in Scripture and you look at it by itself, what does it mean? Well, you get a little insight in Isaiah fifty three. Remember the great prophecy of Isaiah. Remember what Paul said that he has promised the gospel by his prophets in the holy Scriptures. Mm-hmm. My friend, Isaiah 53 is a great chapter of the suffering servants in Isaiah's writings where he is, my friend, led as a sheep to the slaughter. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Mm-hmm. My friend, there's a very interesting verse in that chapter. It says, for all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way, and he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What is iniquity? It's going your own way. Now hold it, what does that look like? Well, if you get over to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is delivering the Sermon of the Mount in 5, 6, and 7, and you get to the end of it, Jesus warns you and I about false prophets. And he says there's going to be a group of people that stand before him in Matthew chapter 7, he says, in the day of judgment, and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonderful works in your name? 39 billion wonderful works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of what? Iniquity. So it's very possible to do good works and those be the work of iniquity. What is that? Friend, when you go back in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, you are 5, you see Jesus open as the great king teaching on the kingdom the qualities that it will take to be a member of the kingdom. And he starts with attitude, I mean attributes, or character qualities, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of God. And right on, or kingdom of heaven, and right on down through there, right? And he gives, most nations, my friend, have rules in order to be a, king, a part of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has character. And at the end of it, Jesus says this, of that great discourse on character in Matthew chapter 5 and 1 through 16. He says, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. Write this down, my friends. You were not created just to be a good moral person. You were not created to not break the rules. You were created to bring glory to God. And when you keep the rules, but you don't bring glory to God, it is iniquity. Anything, my friend, that is done that is good, that is not done to his glory, is iniquity. You can cast out demons. I don't know about you, my friend, but when I read that list, I'm thinking, I don't even have some of those on my resume. You know, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in you? That's a pretty good resume, my friend. And you notice, my friend, that Jesus says in Matthew 7, he does not say, you're lying, you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. He just says, depart from me. I never knew you you workers of iniquity. Iniquity, my friend, is not only transgressing God's law, maybe, it may be even less than that, but it is doing anything that fails to give God the glory that he deserves. Now, what does it mean to give glory to God? When you get to Matthew chapter 5 again, notice what Jesus says. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Now, hold it. That means the good works aren't the light. They're not the light. That's the problem, my friend, that we run into in the church and in ministries from agape to around the world is simply this. We get ourselves entangled in the good works and believe they're the light. They are not the light. The light is the character of Christ, my friend, given in the first 15 verses. So let your light so shine before men they may see your good works Character produces good works, that they may glorify your Father. They will look at your works and say, hold it, those flow out of that character, and that character looks like Jesus. Amen. 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 And my friend, when you give $39 billion to AIDS research and all of that, the people that have AIDS may say that's a pretty good work, but God doesn't. And the issue here is not, my friend, what looks good to men and maybe even helps man. The issue here is what gives glory to God, because that's what you were created to do. And you know this in Romans 3.23, because if you go back in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is writing about the downfall of the Gentile world, he says that God's wrath is revealed, my friend, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. For that which can be known of God, he has manifested it in them. For the things, my friend, the invisible things of him are clearly seen since the foundation, or the creation of the world by the things which are seen. Hold it. My friend, God created for a reason. He created to reveal his glory. And the visible things reveal his invisible attributes. The heavens declare the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, Olden, what does man reveal? Mm. Why was man created to start with? Mm. To bring glory to God. But let's define that a little bit, just for a moment, if we might, so we understand iniquity. In other words, my friend, we are the visible, making known the invisible. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, my friend, the way you and I make known the invisible attributes of God is that you and I are not going to declare the same glory of God as the heavens do. What we're going to declare are the living, vibrant, and if you might, you could go so far as even say the emotional, if you want, of the heart of God. It is you and I, my friend. You can look at a tree and know that God is almighty. You can behold the glory of heaven. You can see the stars strung out to its glory. You can tell, my friend, because he names them and holds them in course. You can stand at the sea of the shore of the ocean and the gulf, and, my friend, know that there's an awesome and incredible God. But the only way you'll ever know the love of God is when a born-again believer lives it out in front of you. Mm -hmm. And you know how he's going to do that? He's going to give you enemies.
1: All right.
0: That's why. That's how. Anybody can love their neighbor if they're good to them, Uh Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount. But my friend, if you want to demonstrate the love of God, you have to love your enemy. You have to pray for those who despitefully use you. Speak of those who gossip and talk about you. And do good to those who do your all. Now you're going to see the glory of God. Uh My friend, if you want to know that Bill Gates is really born of the kingdom of God, my friend, steal his 39 billion dollars, take everything he has, throw him in prison and see if he still loves you.
1: Mm.
0: See if he has two dollars, if you'll give all but ten cents of it to AIDS research. That's what it pays. Mm. Now my friend, it doesn't take long to read that and know you and I are in real trouble. <laughs> Come on. Come on. You and I have a major problem. There is none not righteous, or there are none righteous, no, not One. This book was written so that the whole world would shut its mouth before God and stand guilty. Mm-hmm. It strips you of any, my friend, if you really listen to it. And the Spirit of God is doing His work. That's why I said last week, you need to understand, you live in a generation and in a church age that's fascinated by the Holy Spirit, but it's fascinated about the wrong things. We're fascinated with the gifts. We're fascinated with You know, warm, fuzzy feelings and everything, and we think that's the Holy Spirit, and I'm telling you, it could just be bad chili. (laughs) How do you know if the Spirit of God is above the church? It's told to you in John chapter 16. You want to know the Spirit of God, read what Jesus has to say about it before you read the screwed up things that the Corinthians think about it. What does it say in John 16? When the Spirit of God is coming to you, He's talking to His disciples, He's talking to His church. When the Spirit of God is coming to you, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and applies it personally to your life mm-hmm. and, my friend, cuts away all the nonsense and all those things. That's why the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 will say that the Word of God It's quick. It's alive. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing and cutting even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. Now stay with me. And the bone and the marrow. And reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart. My friend, do you understand that sin goes deeper than what you do? It goes to the very heart of the motive of why you do it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not the glory of God, it's the spirit's job to say no. You are guilty. Now hold it. You got to have the bad news before you get the good news. And the bad news is, is you don't have the flu. You don't have a hangnail. You are terminal mm. with cancer. The bad news is, you and I are marching to a judgment called hell. The issue, my friend, in Romans is not how does a loving God send a sinner to hell. The issue in Romans is how to, as a just God, let a sinner into heaven. Now, why does this become important? (laughs) During the Wells Awakening, 1905, Evan Roberts is preaching in the Valley of Lockhart. And between the years of 1900 and 1902, there will be over 100,000 convicts in that little valley of Wales. It's one of the greatest revivals recorded in the history of the church. G. Campbell Morgan, who is one of those stoic, never smiles Englishmen that lives down in London, who has followed on the heels of Charles Spurgeon as Britain's greatest pastor, believes that the Gwales Awakening is nothing but the emotion of the Wells people who were known for their emotional outbursts. Let me give you a picture of this. Let's say that in the black communities of Houston, Texas, there are 100,000 converts. But, you know, those white people who never raised their hands. Now, listen, I'm just being personal with go you. Ahead, okay? Go ahead, Say, those aren't real. Yeah, those are emotional people. They just got all hyped. So, G. Campbell Morgan, 10 years after the Whale's Awakening in 1910, decided to prove and debunk the Whale's Awakening. So, he traveled to Wales and he traveled down the Valley of Lockhart, interviewing the converts of Evan Roberts and that great movement of God. At the end of one year, he documented over 90% of those converted, 10 years later, was still walking with God. And you say, well, what's so impressive about that? Billy Graham never recorded a crusade that over 10% of his converts were still walking with the church six months later. Did you hear me? Billy Graham, who was probably the greatest preacher, and I loved him. I loved his preaching. I loved to hear him preach. Billy Graham, who my friend documented over a million convents, never had a crusade that six months later they could find over 10% of those who profess Christ still walking with God. Wales, 90% 10 years later. How does that happen? What's going on here? You studied the revivals of Whitefield and, Whit- and, and Wesley of the late 1700s. that set the colonies in England aflame. And literally, my friend, empowered the men who would say things like Patrick, you know, whatever. Patrick Henry. Henry who was a better preacher, by the way, than he was a politician. Think about it, my friend. Their converts are estimated, my friend, that 90 to 95% of them still walking with God years later. Today we're lucky, my friend, in the church. If we have three discipleship programs, we sing 30 time verses of Just As I Am and get them to come just as they are. They leave just as they were. And we're lucky if we have one of them still walking with God a year later. What is the difference? What is going on here? Does the gospel no longer have the power that it had back then? Do you understand, my friend, that when Whitefield swept the colonies north, my friend preached over 400 times in 120 days, riding on horseback from Georgia to Boston, my friend, that he literally <coughs> would see massive amounts of converts. And, my friend, do you understand that in that culture, in the little population of the colonies, they were burying 15,000 men and women every six months from alcohol poisoning. Sin, my friend, has always been around. But when he preached, he saw something. What's the difference? I'm going to pick on little Day.
1: Come up here. Little Dave is (laughs) (laughs)
0: right. Sitting in the chair. Now I don't have any parachutes, but let's pretend these are parachutes. And he just got on a plane. And I come back to see Dave as he's sitting there, and say, "Look, Dave, I want you to put this on." because it'll make your life so much better. Mm. We have a wonderful plan for your life on this night. But just to make sure you really experience it, we want you to put extra <laughs> No, no, we want to put you yeah. <laughs> We want to get you really, yeah, yeah. This is going to make you enjoy your trip so much
1: better. You are going to
0: have a and, and you know what? If you wear those, we have a purpose for you. Oh, we are going to just have a wonderful time. Now, my friend Dave is on this flight. 90% of the other people don't have any of that jump on. They're enjoying the overflight movie, but this thing keeps cramping Dave's neck. And you know, they're having a drink, and food that Dave can't eat because his arms are all bound up in the parachute. But this is going to make your trip so much better. Oh, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be wonderful. How long do you think Dave's going to wear those? Mm. Before he finally gets disgusted, especially my friend, as he tries to dry, he hold his coffee and he spills it all over his lap, he tries to eat his peanuts and they run down his neck. And now he's got itching problems. These are probably that way. They've been in the garage for six months. <laughs> and
1: uh, I'll tell you what I found on them I picked them up
0: this morning. But now hold What happens if this is. Dave, we want you to put those on. Because we studied this plane. We can document ten reasons why this sucker is going down. The bolts of the engine are coming loose. There's a bomb in that one. And I just keep documenting one after another. These are the reasons it's crashing. And you can bet it's going to crash. You're not going to feel real comfortable having those on. It's not going to fit with everybody else in the plane. They're going to have a great time, but I'm telling you, when this plane starts going down, they're all going to wish they had one. I'm telling you, that will deliver you Mm. from the crash to come, because it's coming. Look out the window. You can see it. See this one? See this study? See that engine coming loose? We know why it's coming close. It's coming off. You see this document here? This is the health degree of the pilot. He will have a heart attack before this plane lands. Mm-hmm. You see that out there, that package? That's a bomb. Mm-hmm. It will go off. We're not really sure when, but it's going to go off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So here in a little while, we're going to open the doors on this plane. let that have a parachute everybody else is going down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You think he'll take them off? Mm-hmm. You think he takes it off if I just thought he was only wearing it? i going to give him a wonderful thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does American evangelism say? Like? You're a pretty good person. You just need a few straps. It'll make your life better. Mm-hmm. Without the law, the parachutes don't stay on. You want to know why we have less than 3% of our converse walk with God in America? Because we don't understand the path of God. We don't understand His coming kind of judgment. We don't understand, friend. And so when we hold up the cross, we have to hold up the cross that Jesus is a pretty good therapist and He'll help you have a better life. The truth of the matter is, my friend, that all those who live godly in in this world will suffer persecution. Mm -hmm. The truth is, my friend, live for God out there on the streets like he really wants you to, and it ain't going to go real well. The truth of the matter is is the gospel is not pliable to the mouth of the non-believer. The truth of the word of God is is that those people out there persecute those who love Jesus Christ. The truth, my friend, is is the systems of this world are opposed to the kingdom of God. The truth is, is that salvation is not to make you more comfortable in this world. It's to prepare you for eternity. And to face the justice of God. Not to give you a wonderful life. But to get you ready for a wonderful eternity. Because it will deliver you from the wrath to come. And when you know that, my friend, these parachutes will stay on. I don't care how uncomfortable they make you. I don't care, my friend, whether the ways of God fit the world. I'm not taking it off because I understand, my friend, the wrath of God. And if you don't have the first four chapters of Romans, the gospel means nothing. And if you don't have the first 10,000 years of the judgment of God upon this world... And his law, the gospel, means nothing. You flee the wrath of God, that you might experience the love of God. And if you haven't seen the wrath of God, you'll never embrace his love. Why would you? He's just a doting old uncle up in heaven, and he's not going to do anything about it, anyhow. If Dave is convinced this this plane is going down, you couldn't tear these off of him if you wanted to. If you tell him that if he'll just give his life to Jesus, he's going to have a wonderful time. The girls will find him more attractive. You know, after all, God has got a wonderful purpose for you. He'll take them off as soon as things go wrong. And friends, you haven't walked with God very long and obeyed his commandments in a fallen world, and not seeing that his commandments do not fit in the worlds of men. That's the message of Romans chapter 3. The message of Romans chapter 3 is God has shut up the world to judgment. That every mouth might be stopped. Every sinner might stand guilty before God. That he could present his son as their savior while maintaining his justice. That he might be just and a justifier of them that believe. Mm -hmm. He cannot, my friend, come down from the high throne of his justice. And he must, because of his overwhelming love, justify the sinner. Mm -hmm. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. My friend, that's why you have hold hymns, my friend, written. Where, you know, the old hymn writers would talk about, you know, how they had seen and and neglected the Word of God. But then they finally saw Christ for who He was. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. At Calvary, friend, at Calvary. Think about those words. Think about, my friend, the words that would say, by God's Word. My sin I learned. Really? My sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd sperm until my employing guilty heart
1: was turned to Calvary. Friend, listen, you got to see your sin.